Welcome to Dragon Talk. I am Greg Tito, and I'm joined by a new, well, not really new, an old person. <laughs> Hi, old person. Hello. <laughs> yes. Bart Carroll is here. Yes, uh, good to be back on the D&D podcast, just uh, filling in a little bit for Shelly Mazanoble today as she's off out and about. She's doing secret projects. Yep. Yeah, she is t- uh, doing all kinds of things that we can't talk about, although I almost just said it. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Sure. <laughs> we'll beep it out again like we did with the uh, the Joe podcast. Yeah, we don't want her to, to come on here and have to scream beep <laughs> and make it all happen. Uh, so Bart, uh, so you're here uh, uh, as... Uh, you know, a new member, a new-ish member, official member of the D&D team uh, as of the summer, actually, I guess. But uh, tell a little bit quick about what you're doing as a digital marketing manager and co-host of the podcast right now. Yeah, no. So uh, if folks had been listening to the podcast for a long, long time, they would have heard my voice on it years and years ago. Uh, for a period of time, I was working on the podcast and then moved over for a couple of years onto the Magic the Gathering team. Uh, I was working on websites and online campaigns for them for a while, but decided that uh, heart and soul belonged to Dungeons & Dragons and made a very concerted case to get back onto the team, which I was very blessed and uh, honored to be able to do. So now I'm working uh, as the digital marketing manager for Dungeons & Dragons, which entails the website, but also Dragon Plus, our online magazine, a bit of social media, a bit of live events uh, in conjunction with yourself, of course, Greg Tito and Trevor Kidd as well. So uh, doing a lot of uh, great, great uh, promotional and uh, marketing and and uh, all sorts of uh, fun, engaging activities online and, and elsewhere. Making the fun happen <laughs> is what we like to call your yeah. job description. There you go. So uh, Dragon Plus is got a new issue coming out at the uh, the th- this month, the end of February. End of February, we do have a new issue coming out. Uh, we put out Dragon Plus every other month. Uh, and as, as I've said, internally, maybe not externally, but internally, it's uh, a really big pleasure to be able to work on, on Dragon Plus, not just for its... Um, for its legacy with, with Dragon Magazine, but also as, as sort of a very enjoyable proving grounds for, for new material and working with new artists and working on uh, different types of content that we might not always have a home for in other places. Yeah. Uh, but, but Dragon Plus has been a great, great home for, for a lot of content that we've been able to find out in the community or uh, we have a, a great set of editors. Uh, we work with our partners, Dialect, that rounds up some, some good content yeah. for us to do. And Shauna uh, Narciso, Shauna Wolf Narciso, uh, <laughs> makes uh, those covers really sing. I love the Dragon Plus covers. She also really enjoys working on Dragon Plus for nice. that reason. It's, anything, uh, anything you want to special want to talk about for the end of this this issue? Uh, for the February issue, uh, we're working on it. We're calling it our inspiration issue. Uh, we have a South Korean artist who had done some some great D and D inspired work. And we took that work and, uh, and put it in front of Adam Lee, one of our great R&D staffers, uh, to develop some uh, sample world guide material for it. Uh, nice. So if his art was inspired by D&D, how would uh, his art inspire us on the D&D side as well? Uh, we also went out into the community looking for other tales of how uh, the game and the brand ha- has uh, inspired various folks over the years. So uh, some good tales came out of that. Um, Love it. Yeah, yeah. The artwork for that uh, uh, from that Korean artist is amazing. I don't. I won't mangle his, uh, his or her name <laughs> by even trying to pronounce it. But his it, name. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, cute cats. 
but not cute cats. <laughs> like they're they're pretty vicious cats as D and D adventurers. Yeah, so that's cats, right? Yeah, that's that's cats uh, in, <laughs> in general, right? They right. could be cute. They could rip your face off. I know. I was just getting my hand scratched to pieces yellow last night by my <laughs> own cat. So yeah, they make very good D and D players. Nice. Uh, so yeah, uh, look for uh, the next issue. It's on the D and D website. You can also find it at dragonmag.com. Uh, we're shooting for February 23rd uh, for the next issue to come out. If you don't see it then, that means we've moved it to February 28th, but February 23rd is our, our current street date. Sweet. Go check it out. It's a free app. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, all, that, all that stuff gets for free and it updated every, every two months. So yep. good stuff. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's our quick Dragon Plus uh, uh, let's talk about it thing in the opening of this intro. Uh, we want to throw it directly to uh, a lore you should know that uh, is in... Uh, cahoots with our newest product coming out, uh, which is Tales from the Yawning Portal, a collection of seven old-school adventures, well, a mix of old-school, mid-school, and uh, new-school stuff. Um, And uh, they're all updated for 5th edition, uh, new art, new maps, uh, new publishing guidelines, um, and it's really awesome. And uh, this lawyer should know, I think, will detail one of those adventures and uh, go into some of the stories and uh, why it makes that interesting. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to start with Tomb of Horrors, just for the fun. Why not? All right, so we'll throw it to uh, Matt and Chris talking that up right now. So thank you guys for joining me for another segment of Lore You Should Know. We have our uh, resident lore master, Mr. Matt Cernit. Howdy. And Chris Perkins. Hello. Who needs no other introduction than that. (laughs) I am the The Chris Perkins, Perkins, exactly. Uh, Okay, so today we are going to talk about the lore behind uh, one of the most uh, iconic dungeons in D&D's past, which is going to be uh, 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 printed in uh, a new product called Tales from the Yawning Portal, the Tomb of Horrors. Uh, so Matt is going to tell us uh, a little bit about the history. Uh, Matt and Chris are going to tell us about the history of uh, of Tomb of Horrors. But Matt, why don't you tell us when it, when was uh, it first published? Let's see. The gosh, yeah, Chris might know that off the top of his head, but I have to look it up. Um, seventy eight. Yeah, seventy eight. Yeah. Wow, I was born in nineteen seventy eight. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm as old as horrors. Jesus. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's 1978. So it started out as a um, convention module, right? That's right. It was a tournament adventure run at one of the Gen Cons, and it was designed to be mean and lethal. Uh, it is. It, it, it has earned a well-deserved reputation for being the meanest of the mean when it comes to dungeon adventures. It, it was intended to kill high-level characters, and it did a very good job. And so uh, uh, maybe a little bit about com- competitive play needs to be talked about here, because I don't think a lot of people are really are familiar with that is uh, uh, in the current incarnation of D&D. Yeah, it's interesting, because it, uh, play style has changed so much since mm-hmm. the early days. Uh, even just the sort of nature between DM and players was much more uh, adversarial, particularly in the case of Gary Gygax himself. It was... Um, a sort of interesting mix of uh, adversary, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because obviously the DM has all the power, but then also uh, largesse and just sort of giving out all these great rewards and um, you know lots of followers and things like that. And so that's another thing too that um, I think people don't necessarily realize today is that it was embedded in the game in the past too that your character would often 
attract followers at certain levels. So if you had a high-level character, you probably had a castle and, you know, so many men-at-arms and, yeah. you know, all these these baggage carriers and stuff like that. Right. You would have henchmen right. uh, who were basically like low-level adventurers who were with you who you could right. tell to go forward and then die and then therefore you wouldn't have that risk yourself. Right, or, or you'd, you'd, you know, take henchman number five and turn it into you know, Larry and adventure with Larry after your character died. So. Right, and one of the good things about Tomb of Horrors was it did sort of tax uh, not only players' abilities um, but also characters' resources. And the way the old tournaments were set up was you got together with a game group at the convention and you basically sat in a hall with a DM who was assigned to you who ran you through the adventure and you'd get points effectively. Um, and at the end of it, you'd either all be dead or some of you would be survived and then uh, the points would determine which group won the, the tournament. Um, the best D&D players at the event. yes. And a lot of that really depended on how well or how badly the DM actually ran the adventure for you. But... <laughs> Um, so it was a subjective kind of thing. There right? was some of that. Uh, th- there was a little bit of hand-holding, or the DMs would have a little bit of guidance to sort of measure their meanness. Right. Um, so all that being said, there was some story, though, behind what was happening in Tube of Horrors. The story was very simple. Like a lot of the adventures of that age, uh, the dungeon was really the star, and the plot and how you got there was pretty straightforward. Basically, in Tomb of Horrors, it starts with, you're standing outside the Tomb of Horrors. <laughs> what do you do next? <laughs> well, the, the, the fascinating thing is, like, it's actually you're just standing outside a really big hill. Yes. And, and, and like, you have to mine your way into this hill. You even find an entrance. Yeah. So, and there's a certain number of, uh, of hours per hex or square or whatever that you have to dig. So, so it, the adventure just starts with, like, okay, well, what do you do? You're in front of a big hill. Uh, I look for signs uh, of like, yeah. something. You don't find anything. I go home. Like <laughs> <laughs> one of the cool things about the adventure is, um, although there was a, an implication that it was based in Greyhawk, it really wasn't. It offered uh, abundant ways for DMs to basically drop it in wherever they wanted to. Right. It yeah. offered several different locations within Greyhawk where the tomb could be located, and then the sort of arbitrary statement: yeah. wherever you want it, it is. Plains of Ayas, uh, near Div, the Bright Desert, Dutch Swamp. Yeah. yeah, all um, that. Those um, were all, you know, uh, potential yes. locations that you could just drop this thing in your, your yes. in the world. Yeah. But just I mean, even in my like, you know, very small knowledge of Greyhawk, I was like, oh, those are all the heavy hitters. Those are all the big bad places that uh, where right. things were. Yes, and um, sort of in customary uh, fashion for a lot of the old adventures, what you saw on the cover wasn't necessarily what you got on the inside. Mm. Uh, the Tomb of Horrors cover featured this iconic moment where characters are staring up at this skeletal being who you kind of assume in the reading is probably the villain of the piece, uh, but you don't really have that encounter in the adventure. Um, yes. how, uh, Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's a little bit of a mislead. Um, but uh, it did give us a Sarak, the, the, the Demi-Lich, one of the earliest of the D&D kind of classic villains. Uh, you kind of faced him of a sort at the end of the adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing the adventure did, which no adventure previously had done, was give us an illustration booklet bound inside of the adventure. Uh, it, all black and white illos, um, most of them half-pagers, that showed or illustrated things that you would find within the dungeon, be they wall mosaics or depictions of rooms and their contents, or in some cases, depictions of traps post-activation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what you see when you open this chest. 
bunch of darts flying out at your face. Oh, so was that a way to kind of standardize the convention play or, or, or what? Um, no, I just think it was a novelty. Okay. Uh, it, they were intended to help the DM by giving the DM things where if the DM didn't want to describe the room in full, he could just say, you see this, and hold up the picture. Got it. Uh, and you have to realize this adventure was pre-boxed text. So boxed text, bo- boxed text technology <laughs> hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> uh, the idea of having read-aloud text really embedded in the adventure uh, in, a, in a fashion that the DMs could use. In order to run the adventure, you really had to read through it all and understand it all um, because the text was written in sort of Gygaxian stream of consciousness style where it would vacillate between stuff the DM is only supposed to know and stuff that the players are supposed to know. Right. Yeah, and it's, it is Gygaxian. I love, there's all these little um, sort of twists and turns of the language, like he uses Heidi Hole a lot. <laughs> and you can you can find that in the, in the the old Gygax adventures. There are certain sort of turns of phrase that he uses that are uniquely him. I mean, it, it's not of the era in in a sense. Like he's he's adopted sort of the strange writing tone that is just the way that he writes, yes. as opposed yes. to you know anything else that might be going on. So right. So um, this adventure tends to be more popular with DMs than it does for players. Oh um, my! For, <laughs> for obvious reasons, it's, a lot of players have their characters basically ripped from them in the course of this adventure. Uh, and bad things happen to your characters in the course of the adventure, like you change gender, or you're, you know, hunted by demons, or yeah, or you just get disintegrated entirely. Dis- exactly, yeah, right. Yeah. Trapped the, in a room that has no escape. The, 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 there are many traps in the adventure where basically it literally just says you can't do anything about it. You know, dispel magic yeah. doesn't do anything. Like you, you can't avoid this at all. It introduced the concept <laughs> of save or die. Oh, it, that um, hadn't existed. In some before. cases, there are no save. Yes, <laughs> it's just, it's just you, you die or you. Die. You die. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, pit is 140 feet deep. What? Like what? This, despite these, um, these I wouldn't call them problems. These challenges. The adventure has survived the test of time and has spawned a number of updates mm-hmm. as well as uh, sequels. Yeah, reprints too. I was and just reprints. I was yes. looking at through things this morning and I saw that uh, there's a um, a product that TSR released uh, way back when called. Um, gosh, it's like uh, Realm of Horror, and it does kind of what um, T- Tales from the Arming Portal does, which is collect a bunch of the, the famous adventures together, and it, it collects um, this adventure and a few other ones, but not the same ones in Tales from the Arming Portal, right, right. Um, into one place and just you know repackages it for folks to play. Yeah, so cool. Tomb of Horrors got its big first kind of evolutionary step was the return to the Tomb of Horrors, which was a second edition product by Bruce Cordell mm-hmm. that Gary Gygax kind of signed off on. Um, Gary had been able to read that manuscript and actually wrote the foreword for that product, and it was a big box, and it was very exciting. Um, and it, it uh, built sort of a city around the tomb um, with a bunch of Aserak worshippers and yeah, really built up the mythos of, yes. of who Aserak is and what his goals are. Because in the in the adventure, the original adventure, he's a demi-lich and he's just off being a demi-lich on some other plane. He, he doesn't really care all that much about what's going on. I mean, the, the um, if you if you go into the final encounter room and uh, you he'll kind of his bones will kind of rise up uh, or and you know or the dust around his skull will rise up and but if you just then don't do anything they they sit back down again and 
<laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's it. Right. And the wise course of action is to go home. <laughs> As always, yeah. yeah. You found the end of the adventure, you know, go home. Yeah, but, yeah. No, but, I attacked the cloud of, yeah. Yeah. Cloud of bones. As soon as you start attacking it, it, it has this weird mechanic where it gains, like, energy factors. And it, as soon as it gains enough energy factors, then it becomes a full-fledged opponent that can, you know, threaten you and attack yeah. you with tons of spells and, and right. totally destroy you. Was the idea of a demi-lich or a lich at all, uh, was this the first time it was introduced? The Demi Lich was introduced in Tomb of Horrors. Yes, yes. Lich was before that. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, my my favorite part of the adventure, I have to say, is the it, well. I have two favorite parts, but one is uh, the golden couch. There's a <laughs> solid gold couch in I think the room where you uh, meet the mummy? The, the mummy. Yeah. yeah. And it's described as just a solid gold couch worth fifty thousand GP. So. I just have no idea, like, what that means. What did a couch mean to Gygax when he said that? And why did he say it was solid gold? Like, what, what is going on there? And then I just imagined, like, that, that scenario where you're moving your friend's couch, like, out of their apartment <laughs> and trying to, like, maneuver it around the stairs, but it's, like, pit traps and, like, lethal, you know, blades sticking out. You're just trying to, like, get this thing out and of the like, dungeon. You didn't tell me this was a sleeper. <laughs> it's a sleeper. I didn't, I didn't sign on for this. You know, it's solid gold. It would weigh tons. It's and just, that, how would that be comfortable? I, yeah, I don't know. I don't right. know what that is. So um, there, are a lot, well, there are a lot of interesting traps in the adventure, and I think a lot of people have their personal favorites. A lot of people like the hallway that suddenly tilts down and you end up sliding into a big fire pit or into actually, I think it's the elemental plane of fire <laughs> at the bottom. Um, <laughs> my favorite, because it's kind of anticlimactic, is this hallway which fills with sleep gas and it knocks you all out. And then to add further indignity to the trap, a giant juggernaut on rollers that looks like a big elephant comes rolling down the passageway and just flattens you. And what I love about this trap is you never have to describe it to the characters because they're all asleep. It's <laughs> <laughs> so like you fall asleep, the end. <laughs> <laughs> it does an enormous amount of damage. Yes. It's another one of those things where it's like it's just inescapable. Like yes. you, there's nothing you can do. And it's just yes. it's crazy. <laughs> I, I, another favorite of mine is is the that there's a, a huge number of false doors in the in the place. And there's hidden doors and secret doors and stuff like that. There's, there's doors that are pl like literally plastered over. So the only way you can find them is by by scraping at the walls somehow because you know to do that. I have no idea how you'd know to do that. Um, well, but secret the, doors were a thing. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of had to be like, all right, well. But but it says are, it but says that you can't find them. So like the, the players have to volunteer the idea. We'll scrape the walls with our fingernails because we're. <laughs> that's the only way. <laughs> but but then there's the 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 best one, and by I, by that I mean the worst one. Is you, there's a false door, and if you open it, it's blank stone. It turns out there's a secret door in the stone. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Like, and then oh, behind that, I don't there's know. a curtain. <laughs> Maybe I think <laughs> there's a hidey hole behind that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, I'm excited for people to check out the uh, the not new but the the updated the fifth uh, edition version the fifth of edition. the classic Tomb of Horrors. Exactly. Yes. yes, there have been other editions that we've updated this this uh, adventure for. This is the latest. And uh, I correct me if I'm wrong. These are all pretty faithful translations. Yes, yes. yes. The Yawning Portal adventures are meant to be faithful translations. So look out. Look out. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert for all the uh, the DMs. Uh, yeah. Don't <laughs> tell your players to listen to this, this segment of the podcast. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you. That's great.
So that was great talking to Matt and Chris about uh, Tomb of Horrors. You know what? That's actually, I'm going to go on a living here and say I've never actually played through any version of Tomb of Horrors. So it was fantastic to kind of hear all that and, and, and get the background. And now I want to play the fifth edition version even more. Yeah. What do you think, Bart? It's good. Uh, and this circles back to Dragon Magazine. We, I just ran a gaming group through the full Tomb of Horrors over um, President's Day weekend. It was a lot of fun. Nice. Did the fifth edition version. They still died a lot. It was great. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, I, we should uh, now uh, speak to our guest, uh, who is going to be on the phone very soonly. Uh, it is Tanya DePass. Uh, and now I'm, I hope I'm saying that right. I didn't get to practice as much as I did with Joe Manganello. Uh, if it's DePass or DePass, uh, that'll be the first question I ask her, though, uh, when we call her up on the Skype right about now. Hello, how are you? Hey, what's up, Tanya? This is Greg. And this is Bart. Hello. Well, welcome to uh, Dragon Talk. Uh, uh, Tanya DePass is here uh, from uh, I Need Diverse Games. Um, and uh, we were excited to talk to you because uh, you were recently at a talk with uh, Jeremy Crawford at OrcaCon. And uh, I've been actually following you on Twitter for a long time. And I just, for some reason, never put two and two together that you would be a D&D fan. And when I found that out, <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, we got to get her on the show. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed Jeremy's talk. And it was interesting because a lot of what kind of made me lose faith for a while in D&D was some of the lack of diversity. Mm. Um, and honestly, some of the people I had run into playing the game. So seeing that, and especially for me, seeing the iconic human now be a black woman. Yeah. A black human. I was just like, I'm sold. I'm coming back. Give me <laughs> give me everything. Nice. Uh well, yeah, no. oh, go, sorry. I was just gonna say. Well, I mean, you 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 uh, mentioned uh, you you playing when you were a kid. You want to? That's always a good place to start. We always ask our fans, like when our, our guests, when they started playing, and what was it that drew them to it. So, uh, what is? Uh, yeah, tell us that. What was your, what was your origin story with Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> Let's see. I rolled a twenty <laughs> on sneak because my mother is very very much a died in the wool pre Vatican II Roman Catholic. Yes. That's and, very similar to me. <laughs> and and did not believe in the power of D&D as anything other than satanic. And what are you doing? You're rolling dice and there's demons. And I had to go sneak off with friends and go um, go play. And it was, for me, it was letting the imagination out that I wasn't finding an outlet for otherwise. And like, like most teenagers, I like to write fanfic and stuff, but it still wasn't enough. It wasn't my world it wasn't my character it wasn't my sandbox mm -hmm. so D, &D let me do that and it's just like i get to go do ki kind of sort of whatever i want within rules and reason but i get to go play in this giant sandbox that isn't written yet and yeah. when you when you have a good gm when you've got a good story that comes together it's the best feeling in the world because you kind of can just go do world building and that was the foundation of, of my love of writing my love of storytelling so uh you said you were a teenager when when you started rebelling mm -hmm. against uh <laughs> church teachings and, and learning about all these uh crazy fantasy things um 
I started rebelling probably preteen, but able <laughs> to do anything about it would be my teenage years. Um, right. So I don't know how much of interest this will be to listeners, but I grew up in a very Roman Catholic household, which was very interesting because I grew up in Chicago South Side as a as a black person, mm-hmm. and so we we were kind of a minority among other folks because a lot of people are like Baptist and yeah. and other denominations. There weren't a lot of Catholic schools or churches on the South Side where I grew up. And it was just, I was like an extra level of odd as a teenager. (laughs) So, you know, it was just kind of, this isn't my thing. I'm not feeling it. And as I got older, I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm not digging it. I tried, I tried other paths and eventually I actually wound up on the Nordic path with, with Asachu and and the Nordic deities. Oh, no way. Really? That's interesting. Thus, my screen name, Cypher Tear. Oh, see, then, I, see, okay, I was, I was going to ask you about that because <laughs> I was thinking about it as the D&D deity uh, <laughs> after the context of uh, 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 finding out you were a D&D fan. So I was like, oh, I wonder if that's uh, related to, to the tier of, of the Forgotten Realms. So, Not uh, quite. <laughs> I, I was curious. I, I'm assuming you started off as a player. I could be wrong. Assuming you started off as a player, did you switch over to becoming a dungeon master uh, soon enough so that you could get your hands into the sandbox and start making things on your own? I tried to be a GM, but I found my strength was more as a player. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did spend a year abroad, and I found a bunch of other role players. And so we did, we did D and D, and we kind of switched off GMing and doing little quick adventure. So I have GM'd, but I find that my enjoyment comes more as a player as long as the GM and, and the group is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always that's always a, a, a like any group of friends, the chemistry needs to be right. Exactly. And, you know, good chemistry kept me in a campaign of three five for over two years with uh, a couple of my friends. Oh, wow. Did you were you doing a specific uh, adventure path or was it uh, uh, all homebrew? Um, it was homebrew. We were using the rules and the character sheets, but um, our GM North Roberts um, ran us through stuff that he came up with himself. And actually, I went through two characters because one of my characters died because he failed an agility check trying to get away from a dragon. That's a that's a good dramatic way to die. <laughs> it was. It was amazing. He was like, you know, I'm gonna roll. Oh, my rogue kind of tripped and fell and didn't quite get away fast enough. R.I.P. to that character. (laughs) (laughs) So did you, uh, I mean, did he give any uh, indication that you might be able to get away with it? Or did you, like, dramatically just think, oh, that was the right time for for this character to to pass on? (laughs) I wasn't quite ready, but I knew there was always the chance that our characters could die because it wasn't like, oh, you know, if something dramatic happens as long you know, I'll let your character live. It was like, no, you failed the role. Your character is dead. <laughs> no, see, yeah, see, I like that. I like that the uh, that there's that element of risk inherent to the game that you're not always going to make it through no matter what. Yeah, it was it was a great adventure, and and then on occasion it it comes up, and I think about those characters fondly, mm. but because it was two and a half years of every week, every other week for a while, of getting together and spending a whole Saturday with these characters, and it was just so much fun and it you know like i traveled to the other side of the city to go play this game yeah which is tough to do yep yeah i did that uh, a similar thing actually right around the same time if you were playing 3.5 it was like 2004 playing uh, uh traveling from brooklyn to uh upper west side 
to play. Uh, uh, and it was, yeah, it was an hour commute in and an hour commute back, even more uh, if there was traffic or something like that. But yeah, you, you, you do it because once you find that good cohesive group, it's like you can't lose it. Exactly. And, you know, times changed. Um, I, I'm still friends with everyone, but, you know, it's, it's not as feasible for me to commit to a weekly schedule, mostly because of travel, things like that. And, you know, I've, I've also tried to play online, but sometimes that doesn't work out because, again, schedules or technology doesn't like you. So <laughs> You roll a one on your technology roll. Basically, it's like, well, today the internet rolled one for me. There will be no gaming because I can't get online. Nice. Uh, so tell us about that, uh, that 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 character, or, or maybe the two characters that you played in that. What what drew you to uh, to them? Why did you why did you latch onto them so much? So you'll laugh at this, Greg. Uh-huh. Um, as, as you know, I'm a huge Dragon Age nerd. Yes. Um, and Fenris is one of my favorite characters. Oh, I love Fenris. Yes. I knew I liked you for many reasons. (laughs) Um, And and I kind of wanted to to take parts of his backstory and apply it to a D&D setting, Um, which I did. I sort of did kind of. um, I did things where like the amnesia was there. He was still an elf, but he but there wasn't the, the slavery backstory. But part of his unraveling his history was kind of finding out why he lost his memory. What was the story behind it? How did he come to live in this village of humans? Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, that was the character that got killed by the dragon Aww. before we finally got, got through his backstory. But, you know, he went out in a blaze of glory and, and we still, we raised a glass to him and, and he lives on in infamy. Um, and the character that followed was far more lecherous because <laughs> our, our GM was like, you know, here, here is. I'm like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a little more loose with this character, and and she was pretty much, she was a paladin because it has been a few years, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to remember the exact character, but she was kind of a lapsed paladin if I'm remembering correctly, um, <laughs> and she she was just very clear and very blunt on what she wanted and when she wanted it and who she wanted it with. Um, and she managed to make it through the rest of the adventure and, you know, made friends along the way and and kind of redeemed herself. But she still was not a true, lawful, good paladin that did everything according to the book. She played fast and loose with a lot of the rules. That's As cool. long as nobody told her on her. So. I like that. Was that a, uh, uh, you know, were you feeling, uh, this is always something I, you know, I, I think about when I'm building my characters. I mean, like, am I making this character? Because it's like filling a hole in, in, in myself at this point, you know? <laughs> was that something that you were uh, uh, battling with? Or was that, uh, you know, a kind of like, a, oh, I, I feel just empowered as this, as this character does and I want to show it in the game? Um, I just wanted to have a little fun with the character because mm-hmm. I, I played the previous character that was was very stoic and very kind of grumpy and, you know, was was very much, grr, humans, I'm stuck with you, but there's a reason I'm going along on this adventure. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here, but I'm kind of reluctant about it. And he wasn't a very happy dude. So I tried to have that opposite right. um, set up with, with the new character that replaced him. That makes sense. So at least there was some contrast. I like that. Yeah. And I hope the dragon did get uh, their comeuppance. <laughs> uh, was uh, the dragon uh, ever hunted down and, and dispatched? 
I think it was. I think we did find it again because there was like a whole subplot with draconic interbreeding that was very complex. And our GM played his, <laughs> his cards close to the chest. And eventually, like when we were done, like when when we finally kind of got through everything and he explained some of the things that we that was obvious to him, but not to us as the players, I was like, son of a why didn't I see this like three weeks ago? <laughs> um, so it was a great campaign. Um, um, my friend North, I'm not sure if he'll hear this, but he is a great gem. He's a wonderful story, storyteller and, and crafter. And it kept me engaged. And I just really loved it. And it was like, okay, so when are we going to play again? If like we had a lapse in, in playing because either me or his wife or somebody had to travel or vacation or what have you. Right. Well, that is cool. I like. Uh, 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 I I totally identify with that uh, dungeon master who uh, you know wants to tell all the secrets at the end. Whenever you're like, oh man, if only you guys have done X, Y, and Z, you would have discovered all of this amazing stuff, or you know, this story that I've been working on for years that you never even went down. <laughs> <laughs> or I, I got you down this path, and then you just messed it all up within like two dice rolls. Yeah. That's the that's the player's job, right? <laughs> to take things off the track as fast as possible. Exactly. Definitely. Nice. So, um, so yeah. I mean, let's talk a little bit about Dragon Age because <laughs> even though this is the D and D podcast, but I know Dragon Age Two was a, was a game that was like totally in my uh, my wheelhouse when it came out, uh, and uh, I, I loved it because it was a city story. Uh, was that something that that you know resonated with you? coming from the south side? Um, a little bit. It was more that the characters had agency and they grew throughout the three acts of the story. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of RPGs, a lot of stories, you, you come in contact with your protagonist and then everyone else is kind of dependent or codependent on what your protagonist is doing. They're, they're always in that one spot until your protagonist comes to pick them up or comes to talk to them. And with Dragon Age 2, the characters had their own lives. Like, they, they made remarks about playing cards and and doing other things on their own time. They got together if Hawk didn't romance certain people. Um, and the characters had such good growth and such good writing. It is my favorite video game of all time. Ooh, you go as far as that goes even, huh? Oh, yes. I, I will I will be that person on the internet that <laughs> wants to fight about, about this game. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're in good company because I, I think I gave it five stars and I still randomly get uh, uh, people messaging me on Twitter being like, how could you give Dragon Age 2 five stars? It was terrible. And I'm like, you don't know. You don't know nothing. Um, but one of the things I always went back to was, A, was that that city part because I, 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 you know, I, I spent a lot of time in, in New York. So I, I definitely loved any kind of story that was uh, fantasy but also dealt with the, the story of a location, like how the location changed over time um, uh, like it did in Kirkwall. Um, but it also was the first RPG and, uh, you know, shout out to, to Mike Laidlaw for making this happen, but that felt like a, a, a tabletop RPG campaign mm -hmm. because of the things you mentioned of like the characters coming in and having real lives and you didn't necessarily have to have contact with them in order to feel like it was part of the bustling city. Um, and also that like the, the, the choices that you made early on affected everything later on almost, I mean, they didn't quite make it, you know, as infinite as a human DM would be able to make those, those, uh, choices be, be manifested, but 
they did a pretty good job of, of doing it. And the smaller scope let them do that. So like some of the people were complaining that it was only in one location in one city over time. Um, instead of the sprawling, you know, uh, map that was Origins and what was later Inquisition. But mm -hmm. they wouldn't have been able to do that kind of storytelling if the scope was so big, in, in my opinion. So, like, that, that, I mean, that was part of the reason. They, their constraints made it better, in my mind, instead of making it worse. Uh, and, like, you never really had a connection to a protagonist's family, like you did in Dragon Age 2, uh, at least for, for any, any RPG or computer RPG that I played, uh, the family really felt like it was a real unit, uh, and, and the story that happens to them is independent of the, the overall story, but it felt very personal. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I loved it, and I, I wish people made more games that were, that were smaller in scope and also had the, the breadth of storytelling that it does. It does, and um, I wanted to to give a shout to Jennifer Hepler for writing Anders. Yes. Because he is such a polarizing character, but he's so well-written. For sure. Um, yeah. And, like, for me, the other part of Dragon Age was, you know, you, you got these characters, and the fact that some characters could leave or they you could tell them to go, which can happen in a tabletop, like your characters could not get along or for plot reasons or some reason that the GM may come up with with a character going off for a few weeks or whatever, um, kind of like with Fenris, where if you don't act fast enough, he will leave the party. Yeah. Um, so there's just there's just so much rich storytelling, and that that's something that's always got to me when it comes to, to video game RPGs, but mostly tabletop, because every time you sit down, it's going to be a different experience, be it, you know, D&D, &D, which, is, which is the classic, or, you know, anything else like, you know, other RPGs that are out there. Um, I don't want to get you in trouble if I mention other RPGs. <laughs> um, That's all right. There's no, there's no trouble here. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, um, you know, like Pathfinder, because they're awesome. Um, it, it all comes down to the imagination. And that's where I think an, an RPG, especially one like D&D that is so storied, that has such a long history, can, it can be made or broken by who's at the table. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing that I try to talk about and I've been trying to talk about more is, is getting back to that. Who is at the table? Who's leading the story? You know, where, where are you finding your players and are you welcoming all your players? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and Fenris is a good example because on the surface you're like, why would I want him in my party? Uh, mm -hmm. because he's, you know, uh, even on his introduction, he's pretty, you know, mean really <laughs> uh, oh, he's got good reason he's got good reason to be definitely for sure uh and i developed you know my, my hawk character developed like a uh, uh uh you know the the friendly rivalry uh as it were or even just rivalry that kind of ended up being maybe a little bit companions you know uh mm -hmm. and that is something that i didn't think was very well represented in in, in uh computer rpgs either and that you know around the table uh playing uh D D there's always rivalries between party members and, you know, one-upmanship and trying to outdo the other or, you know, outright not agreeing with each other. I mean, D&D has been fraught with those characters for a long time from from Sturm, Brightblade, and, and Dragonlance to, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, even going back to, like, the Lord of the Rings, you know, the, the conflict within the party there, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's storytelling possibility that uh, uh, a lot of RPGs don't, don't necessarily delve into. Yeah, and that's where it helps when 
you know, you've got someone who has that strong storytelling ability and background. Mm-hmm. I, I take that back, not background, ability, because, you know, storytelling is a craft, but I think if there's a, a nugget of ability, it can be nurtured. Because um, some people think that they can't jam. They think, oh, no, I can't do all of this, and it's math, and, and it's rolling dice, and keeping up with stat tables. and But it's really the ability to craft the, the tale, and, and keeping up with stats is secondary. There's programs that will do that for you. Mm-hmm. And, and your players need to keep up with their stats, too. Um, yeah. But it's just that wealth of of what a various, what a varied group of people can bring to the table. And kind of going into what you mentioned before about the inter-party conflict, mm-hmm. I remember when I was first learning to DM, you know, as a, as a kid, that was something to be avoided at all costs. If the party, oh, really? oh absolutely, if really. The, if the party was starting to fight amongst themselves, uh, you didn't know what to do. So you know, you had to have an exterior force for them to to fight against, or mm-hmm. else it, it felt like there was a danger of the party collapsing. And then I think after a certain amount of years and experience, you, you learn that it's uh, not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. It's just something, and to what you're saying, the DM as the storyteller, it's, some, it's a new element for them to manage around the table. And mm-hmm. you can get a lot of, uh, of great storytelling out of that uh, if it's managed uh, carefully and correctly. Uh, but but mm-hmm. I think that could be seen as a uh, a red flag for for a lot of uh, for dungeon masters out there when it doesn't necessarily have to be. Yeah, true. And I, I think a lot of it also comes down to we you know people are often told to avoid conflict. Mm-hmm. So this is our fun time. We're going to sit around the table <laughs> and and throw dice and play pretend. So why would I want to bring active conflict into the setting? Um, but for me, some of the greatest storylines I've had or interactions I've had is where canonically a group, I'm a character I'm playing, they have a, a, a racial disagreement or racial kind of reason to be in conflict with someone else. If I'm playing an elf or a dwarf or what have you, mm-hmm. and there's a way to weave that in without it destroying the party. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the interesting ways to do it is, I mean, cause part of what you're talking about, Bart is the players themselves having conflict and then it manifesting in their characters or, or even just them fighting with each other. And sometimes what I've helped, you know, and it's different for kids, obviously when you're a teenager, it's always, right. you're always <laughs> going to be like, Hey, don't fight guys. Uh, uh, but what I always like to do was to make sure if they were having disagreements was to make it in character uh, uh, and be like, mm-hmm. okay, if you're fighting, you know, you know, if, if your, your character is not, you know, doesn't want to do what, you, this this player's character wants to do have them argue in character in game, and have all the reference be in game, and that right. kind of always diffused uh, the the real tension in the room if there was any, uh, uh, and made them be like oh and act it out, and it became like an improv exercise. Right. No, and it, I mean it is a a, a uh, subtle player skill though to allow for those tensions between characters, uh, you know the 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 elves and the dwarves or what have you. Uh, to allow for that tension and allow for that conflict, but still for the players to be able to uh, cooperatively move the story forward, even if their characters are going to disagree, even if their characters are not going to get along. Yeah. Uh, but they'll still drive towards a common goal. Yeah, and, and unfortunately I have seen, I have experienced where personal conflict has crept into the game mm-hmm. and then the game went sideways. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, what, uh, you know, do you have any advice for, for that or, or more just like, oh, no, that's no good? <laughs> um, I would say if there's interpersonal things that actually have nothing to do with the game and you as a GM or even you as another player want to make sure that it does not creep into the game is try to talk about it well in advance of your next play session because let's say you argue with someone two days before you're supposed to play and even if it's sort of kind of resolved you know you have that little some people i should say myself have the way to kind of sneak things in character character wise and then it's like oh i recognize this thing we fought about this a couple days ago and now you're bringing it into the game yeah and you Um, think it's going to be funny and diffuse any tension but i actually know you actually meant it and you were trying to be a jerk yeah right i know i've I've been there and done that many times (laughs) i i've been that jerk and i I fully admit it um and it was the last time i tried to play online on like roll 20 with some friends but with that i think it was you know a, a combination of age difference because I was one of the older players in the group mm-hmm. um, but also folks not knowing how to resolve conflict and keep it away yeah. from the game setting because suddenly this character that has no need of every single thing we loot suddenly wants to carry everything and I'm like <laughs> but you're a wizard you can't even use that <laughs> <laughs> oh that sounds like every uh, uh, kid uh, uh, argument we had while playing d d oh yeah <laughs> Just because your character is the rogue or the thief doesn't mean you have to start pickpocketing your own party members. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, where where are we going to sleep? You stole everyone's gold. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And I did that because, you know, you, uh, uh, you know, didn't say happy birthday to me when you were supposed to say happy birthday to me. (laughs) I had another question. Uh, Sure. Kind of going back to what you were mentioning about the the agency of the players to to tell Mm -hmm. the story, especially in tabletop gaming that you might not always be able to do in digital gaming. Do you have any advice maybe for uh, sort of a compact between the, the, the DM and the, and the players where, you know, the DM is, is running the game, but the players want to have a say in where the story is, is going as well? Mm, that, that's tough because, you know, the DM doesn't want to tip their hand too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want to make sure you're having fun. And I think as a player, that's where you should come in. That's your angle to come in at. Especially if you had a, either a quote-unquote bad play session or something didn't go the way you expected and and that's kind of souring you on the experience or maybe you want to take a week off. I would say, you know, not at the table, um, but be- between play sessions, just talk to your DM and go, hey, here's something I was thinking about for my character and this is why I'm thinking it. Just don't like blurt it out at the table or decide this moment, this person got loot I didn't get or you know, my character is now laid up for 20 turns because I fell down a cliff or something. Bring it up between play sessions because it gives you a chance to one, talk privately, and two, let the DM know that you are invested in staying in the game and you want to have fun and you are enjoying what they're doing. But this thing that happened or this this plot idea came to you and if it doesn't mess up their plans too much, is there a way to integrate it? Because you you had this kind of long game envisioned for your character right um and that's why i try to do it because you know sometimes you you roll a character and you may not have a fully fleshed out backstory but as you keep playing and as as your group kind of gels together you go well this character that i'm i'm traveling with or i've encountered they would be either a good foil or a good companion for an idea i had maybe when we're like level 15 or something 
and bring it up so there's a way for the DM to kind of craft that into the story. Maybe not even for the other characters to know, but it's there and it's something of your it's something of your making that is there, but it's not taking over the story, if that makes sense. Because I know sometimes people want to just they want their character to be the hero, no matter what the DM has planned, no matter what other <laughs> yeah. people may want. Um, and it's a, and that's a good way. And then, you know, if, if you bring this up and it eventually comes out in the plot and other people go, wait, I thought we were doing X. That's you maybe throw down the X card, have a sidebar and go, well, this is something I brought up. It's something I would like to explore with my character. Let's talk about how we can make it work, but don't do it in character. Definitely conversations like that should be out of character, either sidebar or separately with the DM if possible. No, I, I agree enthusiastically. I, I think if, if you as a player are reaching out to the DM, uh, the DM has their NPCs and their hooks that they hope is going to be of interest to the players. And if the players are interested enough to attach them to their characters, I think the DM would be extremely excited to, to help mm -hmm. uh, continue the story that way. It also kind of goes back to when you were saying after after the game sessions, the dungeon master likes to explain what they had in mind that they certainly knew, but you might not have known. Uh, mm -hmm. Same same with the players. If if they if the player has an idea for their character's backstory that they might know, it, it helps to uh, communicate that to the dungeon master as well to say here's here's what I have in mind so that it can be sort of explicitly brought out onto the onto the table. Definitely, and I and I think it's good. Conversely, if you have an idea and it, it won't gel or it won't work out, because my first character in that two and a half year campaign, I had ideas, and you know, in a video game, it probably would have worked. <laughs> in the setting the the DM was building, it was just not a good fit, especially not at the point in the campaign we were at. And it's like, well, you know, let's say we get to this to a certain point and we encounter a new race or a new NPC I'll I'll drop hints so that you know maybe you can start working toward that but for right now it's not appropriate and it doesn't fit with what I was planning that's good for your dungeon master to be so upfront about that too yeah and you know and like any relationship because you know sitting around a gaming table with people every week every other week even once a month or online <laughs> it is a relationship it's a marriage of sorts, for sure, yeah. <laughs> you, the dice, and five of your friends. <laughs> I know. I've, I've, had, I've had Dungeon Masters who took that way too seriously, too, to be like, you must commit to coming every week at this time or you will be dead. And I was like, um, that's a little bit too much. But yes, uh, it like, is. Well, I guess I'm dead. Then. Yeah, right, wow. exactly. Do you, Greg, take this Dungeon Master? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't. And we my, all object. My wife would be very mad. <laughs> yeah. So that's good. To, I mean, I, I definitely agree with all that, too, to make sure that you uh, uh, are upfront about it. And honestly, you know, I mean, I, I'm saying this possibly as, as, as an old person, uh, uh, but like <laughs> email has really helped, I think, develop uh, character backstories and stuff way more mm -hmm. uh, than, uh, you know, the old pen and paper things used to, I think, because it's a way to, you know, privately, you know, communicate with your dungeon master offline. You can be like, oh, I had this thought. Here's this three-page backstory that I just had randomly wrote when I was, you know, up at 3 a.m. for no good reason other than <laughs> thinking about my character, you know, and then you can kind of just send that off and not even think about it until the Dungeon Master can bring it back. I did that once with that, honestly, that same uh, campaign that I played for for two and a half years in, in, in uh, uh, New York where I just randomly thought, like, oh, he's an orphan, you know, his mom is a is a, 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 a prostitute in this, in this town and his dad is an elf uh, somewhere, I don't know. 
and didn't really think much about it other than that. But my dungeon master wove in, you know, finding out who my father was and the relationship that he had with my mother and what that was all about uh, to the point where I was like, oh, my God, this is actually really touching. And I'm like <laughs> close to tears. You having this reconciliation thing happen that I didn't even really consider or think about, you know, and it all developed over over email. And it was uh, it was great. So. Yeah, I think uh, there's a, there's a new age of technology that's uh, coming about. And you mentioned, not to completely shift tracks here, but you mentioned how uh, uh, online games can sometimes be good, but can sometimes you know uh, uh, develop their own problems. Um, have you found that uh, uh, playing online is good for um, you know these kind of social cues, or, or do you kind of gravitate more to the in-person games at this point? Um, it really depends because at this point in my life, a lot of my friends are kind of spread out. Right. Um, but I've had really good luck in in being a player in in one of my friends who does things through Google Hangouts. Yeah. And you know, it for now it still has a dice rolling app, and and we can just do short like three four session campaigns, and you know, you have a chance to see each other, which you sometimes can't do with other other things um, like other online systems. And I think for role-playing, visual cues are very important because text can sometimes, just like an email or a tweet, <laughs> can can be misconstrued or or the nuance is not there. Right. You know, you have limited time and characters if you are like doing all text adventure or text and voice. But being able to see someone and go, oh, that was a tell. I know what they're going to do, or at least I think I knew what they're going to do. It it replaces that the lack you have of sitting next to each other at a table. So for me, I've also been, just been a visual learner my whole life. It, it's a lot better for me to see someone, even if it's just for 40 minutes, we're doing a quick session, and I can, I can see those emotional things. I can see the lack of emotional things, depending on what they're doing. And it makes it a much richer experience. I have done Strictly Text, but it's not the same. Yeah, I agree. I agree, too. I, I've tried it as well, and it's... Uh... You know, you, you can get kind of flowery in the language a little bit easier mm-hmm. than you can uh, uh, when you're just coming up with it on the spot with your voice. But uh, it is difficult when you don't know, when you can't see the other person. And even right. online games for me uh, uh, are, are difficult for, you know, staying engaged. I've tried uh, a couple times and I will try again once the technology improves and we enter VR and we're all, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, our, our lawnmower men and women <laughs> together. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, it's 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 a thing, and things are doing more and more, you know. And I think uh, uh, honestly, the um, the video streaming of, of shows, I think, is, mm-hmm. is a, a, probably a bigger a bigger impact. Have you do, do you are you a consumer of, of shows like Critical Role or uh, uh, our own Dice Camera Action here at uh, Wizards? I do not watch Critical Role for many reasons. Um, I have watched a couple of the streams, and I do stream myself. Um, and I also watch Adam Coble, a former guest on the show. Yeah. Um, and Wes Schneider, yes, Skinny Ghost. He's he's awesome. We're gonna do a panel at PAX East. Um, oh, no and Wes Schneider too. Yeah, he streams, kind of like random things, not so much actual tabletop stuff, but it's really cool because you know, hey, it's it's the streaming thing gives you access in a way that you normally didn't have because a lot of people have questions about role playing. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's one thing to go to a forum and we know how forums are for those who've been around long enough. Some of them I won't touch with a flaming 10 foot pole. <laughs> um, but it's it's a lot easier and that interaction is is better I think when you are t- when you are viewing someone who is either 
talking about the development of role-playing games or actually playing a game, and you can kind of watch it in action if you're curious and maybe want to get into either writing for RPGs or or just playing because the, there's a fear I've noticed with a lot of people of, well, these are all strangers and how do I deal with it? Or mm. won't someone think I'm weird? That same Those same fears that were there when we were kids are still around for some people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm just going to put it out there. There's a diversity issue. Um, yeah. I went to, to OrcaCon. The theme was diversity. And I love Donna Pryor. And she did her damnedest to get, you know, a lot of people of color to come. But there still weren't a lot. And it's it partially due to location. But in general, every time I see things about tabletop, it's the same looking crowd. And for a lot of reasons, I don't like going into game stores. I will order online before I will go into a, a brick and mortar dice shop a lot of times. Yeah, and especially in different different you know parts of the country, uh, are are you know better at that than others. Uh, but um, yeah, no, it's 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 something that we've uh, seen as well. And I was actually uh, really happy when we did uh, the Force Gray uh, show in Los Angeles. Uh, me and Bart were there uh, as we were streaming it, and um, you know in in LA on Sunset Boulevard, uh, the crowd uh, was. I don't, I don't think it was, uh, you know, indicative of the entire population, but there were definitely seemed like there were a lot more people of color uh, enjoying Dungeons and Dragons. And even some of them came up to me after the show and were like, wow, we were really excited that we weren't the only ones here. You know, like they came with their friends and their gaming group, so they felt mm-hmm. they felt comfortable. Um, but they were really encouraged by the fact that, you know, Utkarsh was there uh, playing the game as well as just everybody around them seemed just excited to just celebrate Dungeons and Dragons uh, as what's happening. So... Um, you know, I can't say that uh, uh, it's it's like that everywhere, but I think it's definitely improving uh, uh, for the better. It is. And, you know, before anyone hears this podcast and yells at me or sends me a nasty tweet. Don't do that. Um, no one do that, please. <laughs> um, you know, it's been improving. And, and like I said, seeing seeing the, the talk at OrcaCon made me very, very happy to see all the changes and this is going to be my one and only mention of the drow because <laughs> that is my one sore spot about D and it will be my sore spot until i die oh really um, why, why is that oh yeah they're you know they are literally black um and a lot of people use that as an excuse for racism and blackface and cosplay right um and you know and jeremy did touch on that because bless their hearts we could not get out of that panel without someone bringing up the drow um <laughs> It's just, it's one of those things where it's like, it's just that sore spot of, you know, the worst elements I've dealt with in terms of, of D&D and other players, That's that's been tied to it. So it's always been kind of a sore spot for me because hmm. um, it just seems like that's the that's the excuse to be racist for some players, not all players. Oh, that, that drow are an evil race? Is that drow why? are an evil race and, you know, they're evil and they're literally black and the connotation of black is evil, black, dark is bl- dark oh, as evil. Yeah. So, you know, it's not a simple thing to, to, to kind of lay out, but that is the most concise way I can put it where people have those associations and it's not a on accident association of dark being associated with negative and evil and, 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 and bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jeremy did talk about that in his, in his presentation and, you know, the origins of the drow and how they're trying to get away from that, that history of it and the way that people perceive the drow, which well, I was very happy to see. That's, and that's also interesting to me because I feel like 
Drist uh, in particular is one of the most iconic characters of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. Um, and is you know the complete opposite of all of of those connotations, right? I mean, he's mm -hmm. he uh, uh, you know uh, uh, is introspective and and you know uh, basically you know in speaking with uh, with Bob Salvatore uh, on this podcast and you know other stuff too. I mean, he he embodies a lot of the the, the values uh, that I think that you know. Uh, Kind of liberal America, I guess, is is, is wrestling with right now, uh, uh, as far as fighting against oppression and that kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's 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 for me, it's it's a symbol of of uh, you know uh, good, which is is odd that it uh, you know it doesn't feel like that for you. But I I completely understand the you know seeing someone come into a convention uh, in that costume uh, and not identifying it with, uh, you know, the real world's connotations. I, I, I've definitely seen someone in costume being like, ooh, I'm not sure that was a good choice right now for you to be doing that. <laughs> right. That yeah. Was the, that was the joke in community, right? That, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, yeah. And so while Dritz might be a, a, a positive example, though, that he's, he's singular, right? And he's, he's mm -hmm. counter to the nature of his people. So, uh, yeah, I can see. Yeah. Well, D&D wrestles with all those, those kind of uh, uh, things as well because, you know, you, we, we, we slaughter a lot of goblins while playing Dungeons and Dragons, and we kind of are just like, oh, they're bad. They're just bad. You know, they're they're an evil race uh, mm -hmm. inherently, um, and if you go too far down that road, we're like, well, maybe they should be, you know, uh, uh, we should try to, uh, you know, change their nature. Uh, the game can become unfun for very quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, um, and and that's something that we actually we had a panel on mm -hmm. about dealing with that at the table. And, you know, yeah, I'm interested to hear what you say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Jessica Price and Crystal Frazier and I, we did a panel on, you know, how to deal with race fail at your table because it happens. Um, you know, being generous and giving people gen the benefit of the doubt and assuming that they are not intentionally being racist and terrible. There are things where you don't either you've had no exposure to people of color or you just honestly don't know anyone who's a person of color and you don't have to think about these things because nothing has ever been about anyone but you. Um, so you may say something that's racial insensitive or you may want to go, I want to do a slaver class in my game. And the <laughs> one person of color is looking at you like, what? What did you say? Um, <laughs> or, you know, you do things like you want to give your character uh, a backstory of having been a slave without thinking about the implications of that. Is that appropriate to the setting? And in most cases, 100, it is not appropriate because it's going to make everyone uncomfortable. And this is going to sound bad, but I don't trust a person, a non-person of color to handle that with sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is the point of bringing that into the game? Especially if you know there are one person, people of color at your table that's just like here it's a trap and it's a big neon sign that you are not welcome. Um, so, so we talked about those things, kind of how to sidebar, how to talk to your GM, how to talk to other players. If this happens, we talked about the X card um, because the whole point of it is to have fun mm -hmm. and to, you know, at least for me, it's try to leave some of the real world crappy stuff away from, to have some beers, roll some dice, chill yeah. with my friends, 
And I would like to sit at the table and not have to think about this person next to me who wants to have this terrible backstory that is far too close of a parallel to actual history of, of my ancestors. Um, yeah. So we we gave advice simply, you know, just don't get up and walk out unless it's truly, truly upsetting. But, you know, be able to go, you know what, I need a break. I would like to talk to you, the DM, in another room. Don't start a fight at the table, obviously. Um, but also know when to walk away because sometimes you can bring these things up and, and other players may simply not get it because they are they are stuck on that character and they just won't see your point. And it could be maliciousness, maliciousness. It could not. But you have to know when this is not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Because it's not I mean, I, I really like your point of like it. The, the, the point of Dungeons and Dragons is to uh, have fun. And if any of the experience of, I mean, obviously there's going to be drama and conflict, which we talked about, you know, earlier and how that can lead to, to, to fun. Uh, but this kind of thing, uh, and, and, uh, being racially insensitive knowingly or unknowingly is exactly what, you know, I mean, for better or worse, this is an escapist uh, hobby to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being able to, uh, uh, escape into these kind of fantasies is exactly what everyone is trying to do at the table. So anybody that takes that away from someone, um, is just, you know, uh, not empowering. And, and yeah, I, I, I totally agree with all that. Um, and it, and it's, it, it's interesting, too, because it brings up the ancillary point of view of, of, of uh, you know, showing that, they, that there are, were people of color in your fantasy world, uh, which is something that video games, I know, struggle with um, mm -hmm. a lot. And, you know, and as you mentioned, that Jeremy was mentioning at the uh, Orcagon thing, that, you know, the... the the breadth of heroes that are depicted in Dungeons and Dragons, uh, we've been, you know, actively trying to to show as many different backgrounds as possible. Yeah, and um, one of the things that that I find interesting and in that you know, there's a lot of, you know, as much as I hate reusing the word fear in in talking to other people about experiences, um, because it would be very simple to if you if you do know a person of color, you can go okay, look, this came up in my campaign, our player wants to do this, may I use you as a sounding board? Um, mm. Obviously, don't go canvas strangers on the internet and expect them to give you their time for free and energy for free. But, you know, if you are lucky enough to have someone in your life that you can go, you know, this is a thing a player wants to do. Can I get just your thoughts on it? I know you are not a monolith. You don't speak for all black people or LGBT or whoever, but I'm not comfortable, but it's not my place as a non-person of color, if you are not, mm -hmm. to go, this is, no, this is a bad thing, because what I found in a lot of diversity talks and a lot of um, people trying to do their best and do well is that two white people together trying to talk about what is not good for people of color is just, it doesn't work, because you still don't have that knowledge of, of life experience. Yeah, You still don't have that kind of, you know, for me as a person who grew up on the south side of Chicago, this is what's going to kind of be a, a, a no-go. Or, you know, if I make my character brown and describe them as such, I don't want you, I don't want then for my character to have some forced background that reinforces modern stereotypes of what you think a person of color is. Mm. Um, yeah, that's important too, because a lot of what, uh, uh, you know, players get out of Dungeons and Dragons is the idea to feel, you know, free of life's restraints. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm not a mage in real life, sadly, but... <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? I want yeah. to be. 
<laughs> oh, I, it's probably a good thing I'm not a mage in real life because I could telekinetically set some of the people in my Twitter timeline on fire. You, you would go full <laughs> Anders, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, I would not blow up the Chantry, but I, I would set fires to some people that are in my mentions. Um, but, you know, it's it comes down to really being welcoming, being honestly welcoming. And, and that was one thing that I talked about. Um, a lot when I when I was on panels is that the fear of messing up or the fear of I can't talk to someone because they'll think I'm a racist if I if I even approach this yeah that has to stop because a lot of people go oh if I get it wrong then someone's gonna call me a racist or or if I don't have any people of color then they're gonna think I'm a racist and it's like well have you talked to any people of color is the first question. And then, two, you're going to mess up. Just whoever's listening to this podcast, if you're thinking about diversifying your table or your setting, you're going to mess up. Just accept that. Nobody learned to walk the first time they stood up as a kid. So, um, Right. The important is the, uh, uh, the effort and uh, the idea that inclusivity is, uh, uh, is an important value for all of us. Uh, you know, Wizard of the Coast did their values a couple of years ago. And that was one of the, uh, the, the ones that I was super proud of that, uh, was on the list. Uh, and it's something we're, we're striving for and you're right. It's not, not perfect by any means, but, uh, I think the, the intent is important. Mm-hmm. But intent is also not magic because yeah. intent gotta, is great. <laughs> yeah. And right. And you got to follow it up with actual, you know, and I think what you said about actually talking to people of color is probably the best, uh, advice. Uh, for those yes. who haven't, is that it's, you know, they're, they're, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's, it seems like common sense. It is, but, you know, there's also um, emotional labor and what people think you should do, or it's like, well, you know, you want the community to get better, so you should do this for free, mm. or you should do this with whatever spare time you have. And, you know, I, I do get reached out, I do get, you know, emails and things like that, where people go, well, I want to do better. And it's like, well, what steps have you taken? And also, what is your budget for diversity consulting? Be it me or anyone else, people's time is valuable. So, you know, if, for especially for like a company, company like Wizards or even a small person, you know, even if you can't pay in money, there should be some kind of payment, not exposure bucks. Those are bad. <laughs> <laughs> that is not valid currency. I don't, I don't want to. Yeah, right. Part of me wants to call out HuffPo, and so I won't. <laughs> But you did. I like that. Damn it. Um, no, I'll, I'll say it too. Um, one of my friends is like, oh my God, you should totally write for HuffPo. And I'm like, what do they pay? Yeah. And when I didn't hear an answer, I was like, and that's why I'm not going to write for them. And I'll never do a TED Talk because they don't pay you. Yeah. It's 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 a, a scary game there. Yeah. And, you know, and that's one of the things I talk about. I'm actually um, <clears throat> doing a panel and in the near future, basically called If You Pay Me. <laughs> About that. Um, I've seen that meme go around quite a bit, and I, I always applaud it whenever I see it. Um, yeah. I've got a link for you. A friend of mine does calligraphy, and she actually made me a very lovely calligraphy sign that is above my computer right now. <laughs> Maybe that's what I saw. It was on was on your feed because you might have uh, shared that in the past. But I, th- I thought that was hilarious. It's uh, my mantra. It's 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 amazing, and I believe it. Um, so, uh, before we let you go here, what's, uh, do you have any plans to, to do a fifth edition campaign? Have you, have you thought about starting one up? I have, I want to do fifth edition. So obviously I need to get the books. Um, and well, we might be able to help with that. <laughs> yeah. You know where I live. So, <laughs> um, 
so I do want to do a fifth edition. I also want to do a, a Dragon Age um, tabletop because I'm a big nerd. And once I realized there was a tabletop RPG for it, I was sold. Yeah. Um, yeah so friends, I want to do both. Our friends at Green Ronin uh, uh, developed that, I believe, which are uh, they did. They're great. So yeah, uh, cool. So yeah, I want to, and you know, anyone listening who who knows how to act like an adult. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me know because you know if i'm in my 40s i don't have time to like kind of babysit people who should know how to act act right at a table um yeah you know, my, my tolerance um, for that has gotten way, way low as well too with with my old age <laughs> <laughs> your old age Come on now. i know uh, so if uh, folks did want to find out more or contact you uh where where would we best direct them um, well, my personal Twitter is Cypher of Tear, which is C-Y-P-H-E-R-O-F-T-Y-R. And I Need Diverse Games, which is the nonprofit I run about diversity in games, is I Need D-I-V-G-M-S. Those are both our Twitter accounts. Um, if you want to talk about diversity for your event or your game, um, Tanya at INeedDiverseGames.org will reach me. And I do go to a lot of conventions. So if you'll be at PAX East, Game Developers Conference, East Coast Games Conference, and possibly Gen Con. Right now it's a big if, but I'm trying to get there. Um, you can find me there, and I usually post my con schedule at cypheroftear.com. And I have a podcast where I talk about all this stuff all the time. And you are more than welcome to come join me on the podcast so I can I can put you behind the mic. For oh, change. nice. Yeah. We'll <laughs> uh, definitely and that do is, that. Yeah, and that's Fresh Out of Tokens. Um, it's over on Simplecast. So it's freshoutoftokens.simplecast.fm, and it's a weekly show. Awesome. Cool. Well, I'll be at PAX East, uh, and uh, would love to have you come to the uh, Acquisitions Incorporated show if you're interested. Um, Definitely. Yeah, and uh, uh, see some some live play. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we can talk more for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for having uh, for coming on, Tanya. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I, it's been really exciting because I was just like, Yay, I'm going to go on a podcast. And then I was like, oh, my God, it's like the real Wizards of the Coast podcast. <laughs> but it was awesome, and I will talk to you all soon. I'll see you at PAX East. Awesome. Thanks, Tanya. Thanks, you're, Tanya. You're very welcome. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Well, that was awesome. I really had a good conversation with Tanya there. Yeah, no, that was a, that was a very good talk. I loved hearing about uh, Dragon Age 2 and how other people like it. I thought I was alone for so long. <laughs> Only, only here in this room. Only, <laughs> I'm only by myself. We have to reach out on Skype to people that share your interests. I know my colleagues. Uh, <laughs> no. For now, will be like, uh, you know, they'll understand it more because the, the, the level of of interest in how much uh, people wanted to dislike that game was intense, uh, and it's so nice that now, after after God, it's almost been what five years now that people are now getting uh, into not hating it as much, uh, uh, which is good. Because it's a great story. Go play it now <laughs> if you haven't already. Um, Bart, it was good having you uh, uh, as co-host. No, thank you. I appreciate it. It's always good to, to jump back in. And uh, as I mentioned, it's, it's, of course, an honor to be part of the brand again. And uh, always nice to come in on, as part of the podcast as well. You're, you're, you're a good radio voice that is needed here. I <laughs> Mine is not so radio voicey. I'll, I'll work on my shrills uh, shrieking for next time. So <laughs> break, break. Uh, ah, <laughs> like the w- most annoying sound in the right, world. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, 
I'm sure, I'm sure uh, uh, Quinn has got that handled. So you're, you're oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it. Do it. Do your best Quinn impression. <laughs> Uh, so Bart, where can people find out more about you? Uh, so these days, of course, the D&D website, D&D, D-N-D at uh, uh, .wizards.com, or you can also find uh, dragonmag.com, or on Twitter, it's Bart, B-A-R-T underscore Carol, C-A-R-R-O-L-L. That's where you can bug him about uh, all of his uh, Chicago Bears fandom. Uh, no, you know, that's a whole nother podcast. It's, it's, uh, my allegiances have shifted, but it is, uh, also where you can always touch base about the website or the magazine. And we're always, of course, interested in, uh, hearing feedback and comments and, and concerns, uh, as much feedback as possible, uh, would be always welcome. Constructive feedback. You know, don't just say Bart stinks. And when is Shelly coming back? I, I get that's I get that uh, private message from uh, Shelley. So <laughs> <laughs> awesome! You can follow me uh, on Twitter. I'm at Greg Tito, uh, and of course, check out all the places. Uh, Bart mentioned uh, uh, Wizards underscore D and D is where it's on for the Twitter, um, and uh, of course, check out Tales for the Yawning Portal when it comes out widely on April fourth. Again, it's seven adventures packaged into one fancy volume, all updated for fifth edition. It's your chance, if you're a new fan of D&D uh, uh, or just gotten into it in the last 10 years or so, to pick up some of those old classic adventures. So go check it out. Um, we'll be back next week, um, and uh, we'll have some more really fun stuff, and it most likely won't be Bart <laughs> on the microphone, but he will be coming back soon. Oh. Unless you all hate him. <laughs> in which case, we're definitely having him back as Demogorgon. Goodbye. Ha <laughs> ha